Who Cares About Watchmen, Episode 8. A god walks into a bar. Today we have the trio of myself, Neo from Australia, Ingiga from England, and Tomtit also from Australia. All three of us fans of the Watchmen comic from the 1980s that heartily inspired this eighth episode of the television sequel slash adaptation by showrunner Damon Lindelof, who the three of us have enjoyed the recent work of on television. This eighth episode riffs off the fourth issue in the 80s comic called Watchmaker, which presents the origin story of the blue, godly Dr. Manhattan in a non-linear style. This episode, which we'll now get into spoilery details of, of course, also flits around in time, but speaking purely chronologically, it goes 1936, young Dr. Manhattan and his Jewish father are sheltered by a kindly couple in a manor house who tell him to create something beautiful when he is older. 1986 or thereabouts, after the ending of the comic, Dr. Manhattan creates life on Europa, one of Jupiter's moons. 20-ish years later, he leaves Europa because the kinder, gentler, selfless people he created there are too adoring and boring for him. 2009, he meets Angela, aka Sister Knight, in a bar. He has a long conversation and flirtation with her, concluding with her a agreeing to have dinner with him tomorrow night. 2009, a week later, they pick out a corpse for Manhattan to mould his new appearance after. It is, of course, the body we know as Cal's. 2009, six months later, Doc and Angela have a fight about how frustrating his knowing his personal timeline is for them, communicating and being in a relationship. Doc then seeks out a solution by visiting his old frenemy Ozymandias, as played by Jeremy Irons, in Antarctica who presents him with a way to suppress his memory and live unknowingly as and like a human being. In return, Doc transports Ozzy to his Europa paradise. Doc then visits Angela's grandfather, Hooded Justice, letting him know she exists and wants family, and also telling him about the clan, Cyclops, in Tulsa, setting off the events that start the series. Later, in 2009, Doc uses Ozzy's device, becomes like a human, and he and Angela marry. And ten years later, in 2019, Doc becomes Doc again, teleports his and Angela's kids away to Hooded Justice, falls in love with Angela as she tries to save him even after he says he knows he's about to be caught by the 7th Cavalry, and then he indeed gets caught by the 7th Cavalry. So what did we think of this episode and that timeline? Well, I'll start because I've just because I feel like I might I'm probably on the most uh, positive of the spectrum of the three of us here I really enjoyed the episode I felt it was um as a fan which is you know is a bit uh, Star Wars fan of me but as a fan I felt quite pandered to by a lot of stuff in it you know all the stuff with um John and Adrian sort of interacting and all the um the ways in which it dove quite deeply into Manhattan's whole um fixation on creating life and just generally the the rendering of the love story between John and Angela I thought it was um it's one of the better episodes of the series in my view it's probably not a first tier Lindelof episode of television like it's not mind blowing as a uh, Craig Mason insisted it was going to be but I really liked it and I really enjoyed it I think it's I, I'd say it's a solid success for the series in my opinion I think the way in which the season's been structured so that you have the late season twist of Cal being Manhattan for me that kind of torpedoed the actual um the depiction of Cal and Angela's love story because it's all packed into this hour-long episode so late into the game and it felt like the actual love story was like retrofitted onto it. And what we really get is an episode just about like explaining how we got to the 
current point in the chronology of the series and it felt very um, exposition-y and like Manhattan and Angela, their love story I thought was kind of creepy at times in ways which the episode almost didn't seem yeah. aware of. Um, and yeah, I think just it's getting to the point where like elements from the book are sort of torpedoing into um, what made this series really good to begin with. And it's a little bit like a little bit uh, disappointing for me personally. Yeah. As far as adaptations of the iconic watchmaker, nonlinear Dr. Manhattan origin story chapter of the comic itself go, I kind of feel like, you know that letter Lindelof wrote to fans on Instagram like months and months before the pilot was shot where he like nonlinearly sets out his lifetime experiences with Watchmen and why he wants to do the show now. I kind of feel like that was a more stirring and more um, justifiable uh, adaptation than this episode was because this episode felt felt very Lindelof being clever and puzzle boxy. Like this is the man that would work with J.J. Abrams uh, on Lost, you know, but I feel like the last like 20 minutes of the episode were mostly like in the same time. And also the, some of the flashbacks to like things that happened just a little bit earlier in the episode, like the reflex thing that Ozzy puts in Cal's head. I feel like these were all kind of uh, not elegant the way the comics nonlinear stuff was. And I just didn't really feel like the episode ever justified using the character of Dr. Manhattan. I know Lindelof says, if you're doing a Watchmen thing, it needs Dr. Manhattan, but I don't know if it did because I felt like the show was stronger before all this Manhattan stuff. I don't feel like, like I get the Zeus stuff, him coming back to earth because he's bored with his creations and he falls in love with a girl. I get that. And I like, it makes sense. It's not bad writing, but I don't feel like it's good enough writing to really justify untangling his comic ending where he just leaves to go create life and be like a God to a new galaxy or whatever. Uh, What did you guys think of how this grafted onto his comic ending? I think, um, as a the, the I think the the way in which the show sort of um, depicts his ending unspooling into him ult- ultimately regressing in a way and sort of going back to his old habits of uh, you know coming to Earth and kind of hooking up with someone, or albeit in a significantly different way. In that this time he's trying to um, perhaps sacrifice more of himself, whereas he was kind of dismissive with his past uh, partners. Um, I think it's it's certainly not uh, an essential like follow up to what was sort of stated in the comic but uh, at the same time I don't think it exactly needs to be I think um because I, I think the the viewpoint the show is taking on Manhattan seems to be one that is a slight rebuke towards the impression we're left with him at the end of the book. Because um, the book gives off a sense that maybe you know he really is done and he's just gonna he's right, risen above it all. He's gonna go off into some more enlightened existence as a god of his own you know, creation, and that's what we get in Doomsday Clock, of course. But uh, you know, in the the show, it seems to be taking more of a perspective of well, you know, he can't can't escape his his essential humanity, his essential need for something more personal and something more human. And certainly, the whole tone of this of this episode was um it was sort of a, a bringing back of the sort of higher sci-fi conceits of Manhattan to something that's more in Lindelof's wheelhouse, which is to say, it's something more of a, a sort of cuddly sort of uh oh God, I'm, doing, I'm doing the thing where i say sort of every five seconds but i think it is it's um it's more of a 
more of a romance. Metaphysical love stories. Yeah, Lindelof has done plenty of these. Yeah, 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 he has, of course. And um, and also love stories between people who kind of become separated and come back together in various ways. That was a big thing in Leftovers, of course. Um, and I think... The- and it's fans with Lindelof himself, really. Yeah, yeah, and... The, I think that fed into the depiction of Manhattan in this episode as well, because certainly there's been um, there's been observations that in this episode Manhattan perhaps appears more, a bit more. I'm trying to what's a non-stupid way to phrase this? I think perhaps in the comic and perhaps in the film, he's quite this he's quite this ideal of a god. He's quite commanding. He's quite imposing. Whereas here, he's more. He seems maybe more vulnerable, maybe more kind of soft and squidgy, and certainly the the, the take on it, it seems more, maybe more of a sort of like, not quite idealised, but more of a uh, sort of more of a husbandly figure, and yeah, I, I don't know, I don't know where I'm going with this, but it, it's He's all less problematic. See, I'm, I don't know if that's <laughs> I don't know if that's true either, like because certainly, I mean, as Tit observed, like he behaves in ways in this episode that are weirdly problematic and strange. Well, I don't think that's a huge problem because you know that's something that practically all the main characters in this show you know do at various points or another. But um, he's certainly he's problematic in new ways, as Adrian observes when uh, commenting briefly on his uh, new choice of race. But um, rather rather than being less problematic, it's I think it's more that he's they kind of go out of his way to make him come off as a bit more uh, lovable or perhaps more believable as someone who Angela might fall for for reasons other than just you know he's good looking or whatever. He was he was being like he was being positively charming in the bar like seduction scene more so than he ever was in the book. That's true. I think all this, like, it doesn't not work having this sequel to Manhattan, having him come back to Earth and all that. It doesn't not work. Like, the writers have done a good job. They've obviously argued and discussed for, you know, hours and hours and hours on how to do this and how to make it make sense. Like, none of it isn't functional for me. I just, it doesn't impress me the way some of the show's more original stuff does. And when it's spending so much time on this, I I think back to earlier episodes doing all this stuff about appropriation head-on and race and legacy and stuff and i feel like the show is really excelling doing its own new territory here whereas here we're like we're comparing it to the comic and going oh yeah it's a pr- it's a pretty good follow-up like it, it does it does a pretty good job and it's like i don't think this is the show operating in a mode that it that it really owes itself you know what i mean like it's not being its best self here i think and i don't think it's nearly as disruptive as lindelof sort of bigged it up as being like when he started out he said he was going to like disrupt the novel in a major way and this felt very reverential to the novel um to me like very um trying to preserve like the sanctity of it in and like not uh do anything too unexpected and like we get another drop of i leave it entirely in your hands like really like once was enough for me yeah i agree changing the race that dr man and like inhabits the body of at least that's an interesting idea that's potentially disruptive and that plays in all the show's themes and then the dialogue for that is just like one joke by ozymandias about him being problematic it's like why wasn't there masses of dialogue or introspection or something about his you know race changing in this i feel like that was really like is it like a mask that he's taking on a different race why didn't angela present um this body to him first why did she present i think it was two white and one asian bodies in the morgue to him first like i feel like there's all these things at the edges of the episode that could be disruptive and interesting and then it doesn't really do much with that it does a much more kind of um uh just timey wimey trap yeah it's it's sort it's like 
it's just too afraid to go into like the uncomfortable um, like margins of the story where all the interesting stuff is. It sort of sidesteps that and even actively mocks the idea of like doing something industry interesting when um, Adrian says the problematic line. It just pissed me off so much that 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 little beat, that like comedy beat, where it should have been like almost the focus of the episode. I. I think an example of something that's in the margins that I wish they'd gone into more was like um, Angela brings up that she hates Dr. Manhattan because he was sort of the, 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 the origin point of what happened to her parents, so to speak. And certainly her kind of hooking up with him is in a way kind of her joining, not the enemy, but kind of getting involved in sort of the... And the embodiment of the various oppressive circumstances that have shaped her life, and that's sort of that's an interesting echo of various other stuff in the show. But you know, it's another thing that you don't really dive into. And um, personally, regarding the Manhattan race thing, uh, I think because he's Doctor Manhattan, I. F- I find it difficult to believe he'd have that many sort of fascinating opinions to offer regarding his sort of inhabiting a a, a different race body because I think he's so you know he's so sort of divorced from that sort of thing and in terms of like the in terms of the way that might actually affect his experience like being perceived as black at the same time for most of for most of that period when he is in Cal's body he's sort of he's got the amnesia device in his brain so he's sort of experiencing that as this sort of blank slate persona of Cal rather than as Dr Manhattan and so I kind of basically I I can't imagine there being actually that much of a great deal of shit to really say because like you can observe that oh hey you know Manhattan turning black is it's a bit like blackface isn't it isn't that that a bit weird but like at the same time this this is like it's it's a weird sci-fi concept it's not got an actual real life analogue like you can't actually you know transform yourself into like a black man in real life it's sort of in in Canada they do it all the time (laughs) yeah 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 of of course but uh, in that sense you know it's you see, 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 like the, the blackface thing. I think the the parallel it doesn't really wash. I think because it's not like uh, it, you know when you when you have a white person in blackface, that's very much someone who is white but putting a, a black layer over themselves. They're not actually like reconstructing all of their atoms so that they are physically indistinguishable from a black person because they are an actually an omnipotent god, right? I, I I don't think the I don't think it's actually that lucrative of an angle for social commentary. Whereas in my opinion, the Vietnam stuff is. So I've kind of myself wish, find myself wishing they'd done more with the uh, the Vietnam stuff and not really giving a, a shit about the the kind of black Manhattan. And stuff really but with the black manhattan stuff i'm more so interested in like angela's perspective on like she's pretty much dating the embodiment of like american imperialism which yeah that also ties into vietnam but like there's so many different uh ways they could have gone with it and there was one scene where manhattan um says verbally like explains the themes to the audience he's like oh you um you're attracted to me because i offer like stability and like you, you wish you could have had a family and like rather than um trying to sort of embed that into the episode you just get him dumping that on you but um like i get why um she would be like attracted to him because um you know he says like um i tried to be a hero in vietnam but like i regret it um so him being this like embodiment of determinism it's almost like her being attracted to him it's it's because like with manhattan there's no blame no responsibility for anything it's like it's no one's fault and that's kind of also the reason why she would want to like be a part of the police force just to sort of uphold the status quo you know so that like no one really has to take any blame for like all the tragedy that's um 
sort of happened throughout her life. But uh, these are the areas that I wish were more like uh, webbed, webbed throughout the episode. I did know um, regarding that bit where he says he regrets Vietnam and he says that he was just being what people wanted him to be. I noticed uh, there's sort of an, uh, that's kind of an ironic echo of what he ends up doing in this episode, which is that becoming human, he's also just being what someone else wants him to be. He, he almost hasn't really managed to actually take on his own identity, you know, despite doing all of this stuff like he's just sort of he's still just being kind of pliant except now that now he's responding to the desires of you know this woman rather than you know Richard Nixon it's worth noting the episode also made him Jewish that's not it's a assumption you can make from the comic like it fits in a what's stated about his history fine but it's not explicit it's not like in the comic actually uh so that's interesting that slots in you know very neatly of course and I liked the segment they added at the manor house and I think that played interestingly with his like fedora atheism stuff. Like the model for Crookshanks even like tells him when he says his dad doesn't believe in Christianity or anything. She's like, oh, that's okay. You can appreciate the stories in the Bible for stories. I liked that whole segment, you know, adding the Jewish childhood to him. And the note that his um, biological mother left him because she fell in love with a Nazi was interesting. Yeah, certainly uh, in terms of joining the enemy, that's kind of the kind of as that's as extreme as you can get with that isn't it uh, it reminded me quite a bit of like rorschach when rorschach was a little boy and he sees like the yeah. two figures making love were they his parents i don't quite remember but um yeah it seemed like an echo of that to me it was his um mom and a customer in in the yeah, comic yeah. For rorschach yeah, actually, that's something I thought about when I was watching it the first time and hearing the whole thing about how uh, his mother kind of went with an SS officer and all that stuff. It, it was very it was very Rorschach in terms of just the level of potential mummy issues that might be involved as a result of that event. I think you can really see why the models for Mr. Phillips and Crookshanks embedded into his head as kind of like this ideal and idol because they were... Um, like, I thought they'd be mad at him or they'd scold him or, you know, try and blackmail him to not say or something but they were the actual like owners of the manor and they were very um you know kindly and kind of considered i can totally see why he'd picture these as like the adam and eve uh in his head and it's interesting that the first people he created on europa uh the adam the first mr phillips became the game warden you know who wears a mask laurie would say because of trauma and, you know, antagonizes Ozymandias. And we don't see the first Crookshanks. We don't see the first woman, Eve. It's interesting to think what might have happened to her. Could that have been tied into the Game Warden's trauma? Or was his trauma just Manhattan abandoning Europa when he got bored of how everyone was acting? And the Game Warden doesn't strike me as boring, but perhaps he didn't develop so much personality until Manhattan left. What do you think? I wonder if the Game Warden sort of... The real question with the Game Warden is how did he become so different from all the other incredibly supplicant and sort of generic clones? And and also the question of, you know, how did he survive so long? How did he reach the position that he, that he does? I, I picture him sort of leading some kind of life outside the, the sphere of the manor and just like fending for himself and becoming so sort of twisted and ruminating on his circumstances for ages until he became this sort of... Uh, this whatever this figure is of the the game warden he 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 is very interesting and i love that whole post credit scene it's one of the better vite sequences in my opinion because it really it actually it, it clarified that whole storyline for me i think because it's 
you know, whereas previously the Vite surrounded by the clones, we'd been trying to work out how it all kind of fit together in terms of meaning and what you were saying about Vite's character. And here we got Vite confessing what his problem really was, which is that he was in an environment that was supposed to be you know, paradise in terms of people who were just you know, kind to each other and who are kind to him and sort of offer him their love unconditionally and it's just it's not a challenge for him and it does actually he's not really needed there and that's I really like that because it's it kind of it refocuses on maybe the slight narcissism of his whole complex which is that it's not necessarily really that he just wanted a utopia it's just that he wanted to be the guy who created utopia and the guy who the hero who actually made that happen I think you can read all this stuff with Europa I mean part of it it's like a matrix thing like humans apparently you can read a lot of Lindelof's politics into this the idea that humans don't really inhabit perfect worlds or utopias very well they operate much better in worlds with more balance violence conflict like in the matrix initially the machines made like heavenly worlds and people kept waking up because they wouldn't accept it as real it didn't make sense to their minds but then when they made it a shitty world like the actual 1990s, you know, it pacified people totally. They totally bought that. People are much comfortable, more comfortable with broken worlds, apparently, than utopian ones. And so it's interesting that Vite tries to like mutilate the world to make it not bore him so much and Manhattan just leaves it. And I think you can kind of read, because Lindelof says like the show is a liberal dystopia because the Democrats have been in too long and they're passing too much stuff. The Republicans can't stop. It's like Keane says, it's tipped too much to one side. The balance has been lost. I think it's interesting. It's interesting to read into the politics of this idea of like utopian worlds aren't sustainable. They aren't actually good for people. I'm not saying I agree with it, but I think that's very much Lindelof's point of view. And you can see that in the um, Doc and Angela relationship too, how she says like, Manhattan has never taken a risk in his life and like that's what him becoming Cal represents is like being a risk it's like and Vite is very bored with this risk-free like manor house type deal we also see with the the clones at the manor house the way in which they become they, they become they they go from really kind and serving to being weirdly uh, you know sadistic and obsessive and ritualistic when the the person they're supposed to serve threatens you know, to to leave them it's sort of it's almost like Lindelof's trying to sort of reflect on like the, the hidden danger behind the supposedly uh, you know kind of utopian everyone loves each other the society is that you get they 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 start to need that and they start to they, they start to do strange things to preserve that. It's like like they become kind of warped by how nice they are, the greater good. <laughs> Speaking of um, Europa, which Manhattan created, and it was the original Manhattan in these scenes, it was a different actor than Cal's actor. But when they did the original Dr. Manhattan, they still got Cal's actor to voice him. And I found in an interview, uh, <laughs> the inspiration for the voice he uses for comic Manhattan was very interesting. The actor says... He identified some of the most intelligent people he knew in his own life. He identified Steve Jobs. He identified the dean of the drama school at Yale. And he identified Damon Lindelof. So I thought you were going to say Jordan Peterson then. I was <laughs> panicking. <laughs> like... So Steve Jobs and Damon Lindelof are two-thirds of the influence for that voice, which I thought was very amusing. It was a bit of a weird voice he was putting on in those bits, sort of a slightly higher pitched. Um, I wouldn't. It didn't like. It didn't like shake me out of the episode or anything. It was weird to observe. It was actually. It was an interesting take because you might expect Doctor Manhattan to sound quite 
you know, maybe sound quite perfect, quite godly. And here at the bar, he sounded he sounded like like a nerd. I mean, it's what you'd expect from someone who's imitating Damon Lindelof. He sounded a bit like nerdy and a bit like a bit, I don't know, a bit <laughs> a bit effeminate almost. And yeah. I thought that was that was an interesting take, at least. Like it's not quite what you'd expect. I was mostly fine. Like, it was okay to me. I kind of wish they'd used a different actor just for clarity. Like, it doesn't really make... Like, it did sound like the actor for Cal and, like, you could tell, which doesn't really make sense because he wouldn't have that voice yet, even though they had a line about his voice box adapting and whatever when he took Cal's body. And in in general, the Manhattan is realised visually and orally on the show. Like, I know this doesn't have the budget of the movie, and so it was never going to have as good CGI or have as enough time to develop the CGI and effects and the way the movie did it using two actors. But I feel like the choice to have him glow and have the classic comic white eyes when he's using his powers and then just be body paint dude with pupils when he's not using them, I'm not sure that was the best idea. And also the bulgy bald cap, I think, just looked terrible. Like it was pulling me out. Like he looked like... We talk about him sounding like a nerd. He sure looked like a nerd with that like huge brain bulging out of his head. <laughs> Mega mind. I'm, I'm sure the actor had some scheduled reason he couldn't shave his head because he was doing Aquaman 2 or something afterwards and he needed his hair for that. But it took me out of it the same way a certain character in El Camino's big bulging egghead took me out of it there as, as well. What did you guys think of how Manhattan looked? Have you seen, like, um, the way Shrek looks in the stage production of Shrek the Musical? (laughs) Yeah. It felt like I was watching, like, a Watchmen musical or something. Every single frame of it was, like, something was wrong. I mean, when he's glowing, like, the nothing in the environment around him glows. So it looks like he's just been, like, drag and dropped into the scene. And, like, the texture of, like, the body paint that they used was so clearly just paint. And, like, the black around the eyes and the the pupils and eyebrows, like, switching back and forth. It, it, it I mean, it looked bad. Like, what else can I say? It's a shame because I think they were doing really well with him at the bar. Like, I love the restraint and showing him using the mask and reflecting through glasses. This was all a cool way to make him look cool and interesting and, like, get around the face. I was really enjoying that. And I was looking forward to how they'd do that, like, in scenes where he talked more in the action. But then they, you know, dropped it like halfway through and then I, I wish they hadn't because I was like, I could feel the director, uh, Nicole Castle, struggling to vary the shots she could do in a bar scene where I can't show this person's face, but I think she was doing a good job. And yeah, th- that concept of not seeing his face was interesting, but the actual face, yeah, I, I, I wish I saw less of it. Well, I was just going to say, um, the, the stuff of not seeing his face at the bar, I thought as much as that was a way of getting around not showing his pre-Cal appearance, I thought it actually did something good for the tone of that whole thing and the, sort of their first encounter at the bar because it's sort of it... Because obviously Angela doesn't know him yet at the bar, sort of keeping him shrouded in invisibility and mysteriousness and just seeing the back of his head a lot, it it gave that whole encounter that kind of mysterious edge, which I think enhanced the idea of the, the seduction that was happening there. That's just an observation. I think other than like the Europa scenes and the opening, well, not opening, threaded throughout bar scene, I thought the script wasn't very kind or didn't offer a lot for Nicole Castle to do. It was like very talky, talky, talky. Yeah, it's a shame because she's a great director. I love what she did with the first two episodes. But here, um, I think it was more of a struggle. Like, I dread to think if another director was doing this, uh, it could have ended up worse. I think, like, 
they, I think they're kind of trying to write this show like it's a comic and that's why you have all like the weird flashbacks, which it works in a comic where it's basically like a collage of like snapshots, but in the TV show where you have to actually like rewatch it, like what you've already seen, it's really um, uh, intrusive. I feel like the whole structure of the show is kind of creaking a little at this point with maybe it's how they doubled up so many solo like flashback stories like episode five, Looking Glass, episode six, Hooded Justice. This one, Dr. Manhattan, kind of, mostly. Like, it's... I feel like there was a bit of struggle, like, in episodes 4 and 7 to move the story in certain ways. And it's like, we haven't seen Looking Glass for 30 episodes. And we don't have to. But I I just feel like the comic had 12 issues and it could kind of neatly go story, flashback, story, flashback with how it set out its issues. And here it's all a bit... um groaning for me do you know what i mean it's sort of like every episode has one interesting character almost (laughs) like that's a very harsh way to put it like it's almost an exaggeration but like episode six is almost the only episode where will has gotten to do anything interesting and the same is true to an extent for looking glass episode five whereas like they get in the book the minor characters would have more of a chance to shine like throughout i'm getting more fond of episode two the more i look back on it because i think it probably balanced everyone the best and it wasn't a character-centric episode for anyone but it had a lot of cool scenes for different characters and it moved the story ahead gig i know you're a big fan of that episode do you know what i mean with how it seemed to handle things a bit better than here? yeah I and mean, when you looking at the episodes which are just sort of basically plot mover episodes rather than having a central motif when you basically episode two episode four like episode seven like episode two stands out like a lot because i mean that, i think that episode is flat out excellent in my opinion it just it just goes bang 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 scene to scene to scene it's just a sequence of great scenes transitions between them all like magnetically and fluently and it has like loads of rich character content loads of like thematic content parallels and stuff it's all over the place it's funny it's weird it's nasty it's insane it's it's crazy yeah it's, it's just it's a wonderful episode i think you, you don't have quite that same confidence and sort of virtuosic uh it just like adeptness in episodes four or seven or in indeed in in this one to be honest even though i did enjoy it like it's not quite it's not as it's not as intelligent perhaps one and two are like a different show to me yeah almost i still i'm still enjoying the show and i have a lot of hope for the finale i totally think like, I know how funny this is to say, but I think Lindelof can pull off, you know, a great finale. I think he totally has it in him. And he might, I think it's 70 minutes, the finale. He might well pull it off very well, but we will see. It's it's certainly been a great show, you know, uh, even, you know, before the finale. Like, there's some amazing episodes in here, but we'll see how he handles it all. One of the shakier bits of the episode to me was the time temporality stuff it was doing with Dr. Manhattan when it introduced the actual grandfather paradox with Angela's grandfather, the chicken at the egg thing where it's like before Watchmen esque time travel almost where Angela says, Oh, don't look in Judd's closet. Oh, Angela mentions J- the clan Robert in the clan Robert. What, what's a Robert? The clan robe in Judd's closet, robe closet. That's what I mixed up. You know what I'm talking about? That scene where she mentions Judd being part of the clan, basically, and Manhattan just dopely tells Hooded Justice that 10 years earlier, and then we're like, oh, it was a bootstrap paradox. The knowledge didn't really come from anywhere. Like, no one first looked in the closet. It was blah, blah, blah. It came out of nowhere. Like, I hate this sort of writing. Like, I think it's cheap, and it's not an interesting thing to do with Dr. Manhattan, and it, it pulls a lot of the weight out of the 
show story to me to be doing these kind of things. And the comic didn't really do this stuff with Dr. Manhattan. Like, in character terms, it talked about how he felt like a puppet on strings, but it didn't get so hard into the determinism. It was like, I have no control over what I am doing. Oh, I must go get captured. That wasn't really my experience of how he was in the comic. It was more like he feels the moments as they happen. Like, he he makes choices. Like, he chooses to help out Nixon or whatever, but his brain is kind of sliding along these choices and, like, he's feeling the pain or whatever of them at, at the same time. But he's not, like... I, I don't think he's exactly like a robot that's just like, oh, I've got to, you know, walk out and get captured because I walk out and get captured. I've got to set hooded justice off because I set hooded justice off. I don't feel like that's quite in line with what the comic was doing. You might disagree, and it felt kind of cheap to me. Uh, yeah, I thought it was dumb bullshit. <laughs> it was like a moment designed for, like, Twitter users to post GIFs of, like, Tim and Eric mind-blown sort of... Like, what, <laughs> what, what, what relevance does this have to you know anything it's almost like a metaphor for like the old legacy characters coming in and making everything less interesting <laughs> like dr manhattan just removes all context from like this this conflict and uh the way regina king who i think is like pretty consistently fantastic in this show i think even she's having like some trouble trying to play the like magnitude the fake magnitude of that moment or maybe that was just me because i thought it was such a dumb beat but like yeah it just just yeah nah i'm not into it i will say um when I watched uh, Arrival, the film by uh, Denis Villeneuve, and uh, yeah, I, I think they do something very similar. And see, that film is expanded from a short story, and you can really tell which bits they've just crowbarred in to make, expand it into a Hollywood film. And throwing in like a random bootstrap paradox is one of the things they do. And I absolutely despised it when they did that. Yet strangely, um, in this, while watching it, I immediately recognised that it was kind of stupid and kind of took the way out of Hooded Justice sort of investigating Judd and sort of made it a bit kind of, oh, okay, you know, the chicken and the egg blah 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 paradox not really that politically interesting at the same time I did find that in the moment of Angela realising that by interacting with Dr Manhattan who is sort of the the embodiment of the idea that sort of plagued her whole story which is the idea that the past you know spilling over into the present the idea that the, the, the past is still having consequences it's still happening in trying to interact with Manhattan in that way she's ended up becoming almost a, a victim of that whole weird sort of like oppressive arc of history and she sort of become the originator of you know the murder of someone who was her, her friend it's it sort of she's um i think the way in which it, it's sort of it's a stupid sci-fi thing but in terms of the tone and the 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 implications that it has emotionally for her, I thought it did sit somewhat interestingly alongside basically the, the themes of her overall story and the way in which um, the way in which she's defined by choices that people have made ages and ages ago. So it's this isn't. I'm not. I'm. I don't really want to defend it per se, but it. I wouldn't say it breaks the show for me. I think it's um, it's something that's. It's. I mean, it's. It's kind of. It's mildly funny. I would say, but it's sort of. It's. It's. I think it. As a point at which the story kind of warps into something that's a bit sort of stupider and sci-fi-er, rather than something that's kind of a gritty, grounded political uh, fable, it, um, I think it, it's... Yeah, it's, it's, this is really difficult to articulate, but I think because shit's getting real frangela right now in the series, I think this sort of event kind of suddenly kicking in and revealing that actually the, the, the causes of the of the this kind of strange sequence of events are sort of happening after the... before the... <laughs> 
I'm literally getting as jumbled in time as uh, Dr. Manhattan now. Um, okay, I, I, did, I didn't hate the beat, basically, even though, by all intents and purposes, I probably should have. Yeah, it's I, t- I see, like, broadly playing into the themes of the show of legacy and, like, it being difficult to untangle where conflicts begin and, you know, generational trauma and all that. But, like, the specifics of the moment of a black cop telling on her chief being a clan member and that being like played as oh no what have i started like huh? like that reads weirdly to me to play that as like the oh that was the spooky thing that you know started this whole oh you know what if she hadn't told like it feels undeniably to me like a good thing that judd got outed and well manhattan agrees with you there like yeah. he even says that isn't it good that he's dead and, and she doesn't disagree per se but it's like she it's the fact that I think whatever well, I think anyone would be sort of fucked up by knowing that they just sort of set off like a whole sequence of you know crazy shit. I, I think it's more considering considering she's someone who we said earlier she was getting with Manhattan because he offered a sort of stability or kind of a uh, a predictability and sort of a being to, uh, up to grips with how history was playing out for that to suddenly go bad and suddenly go in the opposite direction where in fact now history is becoming almost meaningless and becoming like kind of like a black hole of sort of meaninglessness that i think that's the sort of thing that would horrify her i think like you offered a good defense of it gig but like for me um like using manhattan to uh further well i wouldn't say further just express the themes of like the past coming back in another way it's sort of like the same as using mind control to address racism like sure it's <laughs> one way to do it but i think there's like more direct and more um impactful ways to like address those ideas than using manhattan essentially i still have i'm still holding out some hope that with the finale in manhattan uh, being captured by the 7k and so on and that thing they flagged up very uh, very blatantly with the idea of manhattan being able to transfer his powers somehow i still i'm still holding out a, a nugget of hope that, that um the thing that we talked about many episodes ago which is the idea that they set up in ptpedia where you might use manhattan's view of time to get a new view on justice and reparations and you know kind of consequences and trauma and stuff like that i'm still hoping they might do something quite interesting politically with that in terms of whatever they end up doing with manhattan's powers because it seems like his powers are the real are the real key here and the temporal uh, perspective seems like the big sort of the, the, the interesting one of his powers that they highlighted this week rather than say his ability to you know move a chair around or blow people's heads up or something so i'm hoping we'll get something interesting there i know this has gone out of style in hbo in recent years but back in the day of uh, like the wire and the sopranos the way hbo seasons used to always be structured was episode nine would be the climax even the early game of thrones seasons are like this episode nine would have the big events the big climax the big you know the equivalent of whatever true's millennium clock is going to do or joe keen manhattan is going to do and then there'd be the actual finale which was always this kind of it's like an epilogue or a coda to the season and it was basically just be charactery conversations about what happened and not even setting up the second season a lot of the time i know gig you've seen some of the seasons of the wire you probably know what i'm talking about how its finales work yeah i know it's silly to like be asking the finale of watchmen to be something before i've even seen it but i kind of wish we had 10 episodes if only for all the fireworks and theatrics in episode nine and then another like episode two style just calming down discussing what happened afterwards because i feel like there's going to be so much that needs to happen in the finale and I, I reckon they can pull all that off but then i also want kind of some ruminations on everyone's part 
And maybe they'll somehow put all that in there, but... I don't know. It's 70 minutes left to do everything. It's just, just one more thing I want Neo said. It strikes me the structure you described there with HBO shows and The Wire is actually how the book is structured. You know, Watchmen, like, arguably, say the climax happens in the penultimate chapter, and then the final chapter is just everyone finding out about sort of the, the, the horrible consequences of that yeah, and ultimately sort of settling down. I mean, I know there's a big fight between Manhattan and Ozymandias in the final chapter, but it's kind of inconsequential. Like, the, the, the squid happens at the start of the final chapter, and everything after that is just sort of winding down from the squid. I'm just, I was just going to say that, like, I'm having visions of Joe Keane like shooting a giant blue laser into the sky and that's sort of <laughs> the battle <laughs> of Ranskor have Kolos basically <laughs> but with yeah. Nazis yeah absolutely but and you know when well, you know we're going to get like an epic lube man comeback like and PDpedia has all but confirmed that that is Dale Petey the PDpedia this week's were all from Dale Petey that was his book report on the book Ozymandias was reading in the post credits scene here which was mentioned in the original comic. And it was also just his like memo of the week. But it's a whole very, yeah, much pointing to him having his own origin story as Lube Man and where the Lube Man costume came from. The only thing it doesn't justify is where the hell someone gets the idea to lube themselves up and slide down sewer grates. But I hope this is as far as it goes. Gig was telling me before, this reminds him of, in the comic, how we had the end is nigh, you know, red-headed man that we realised was Rorschach towards, you know, the second half of the comic. That was a twist. But, like, this kind of subtle... But memes. Yeah, like... It's something that you can... If you pay attention, you will notice it. But it's not something they shove in your face, right? So I'm kind of hoping they leave Lube Man pretty much like that. Like, maybe we'll see him again, but I don't want them to unmask him. I think, you know, everyone paying attention has worked out that he's, he's PT at this point, so they don't need to, like, patronise us by shoving in our faces that he's PT. Like, it's funnier if they don't do that. That said, Laurie's reaction to, <laughs> to seeing PT dressed up like that and knowing it's PT would be hilarious and almost worth ruining all that, you know, not patronising us element for, I think. Um, regarding Petypedia, I just want to say, like, I'm not sure what serious literary magazine would have a contest for summarizing a novel. Like, I, I'm not convinced that would be a thing that would exist. I can see for, like, a James Joyce book, but I can't think of any other authors you could feasibly, like, some, different people unpacking Finnegan's Wake or something, I can kind of see, but maybe not in a serious literary magazine, more like on a subreddit about literature. The whole the whole recap contest thing, I think, is one of those sort of slightly kind of winking, kind of self-aware, like humorous, satirical world ideas that wouldn't actually happen in real life, but they're sort of in this sort of twisted Watchmen verse, inspired by the comedic stylings of Alan Moore. It's the sort of thing that can happen, and I think there's, there's sort of um, it's kind of a joke about the the impenetrability of this fictitious novel that we don't get to read. But even though Peachy's description of it makes it sound fairly straightforward, but obviously they they mention other stuff like a framing device in India that. PC dismisses as a dream, but is actually incredibly important. Like, I think we're, me- we're meant to just assume that this novel is some incomprehensibly, like, abstract beast, and we're just getting a glimpse of what might be really happening in there. The novel itself, or at least uh, as described by PT, seems to be, um, there's a bit in it where the main characters realise that their rebellion against Nixon and stuff was just, like, uh, basically something that they were brainwashed into doing with some, like, gas or whatever, and it, it strikes me that that seems to be, I don't know if that's foreshadowing or backshadowing, but that does seem to be in line with that running theme of the show where people think they're maybe fighting the system or doing good when in fact they're, you know, they're just they're, well, like with the German propaganda flyer they're just serving another power, they're just being put in a box for someone else's use. 
Speaking of being put in a box for someone else's use, I think you can read an Alan Moore, Damon Lindelof parallel in how Dr. Manhattan creates this perfection paradise of Europa and then he leaves and, you know, someone else gets their hands on it and they turn it into their vision and their vision is a much, uh, yeah, less idyllic. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you can see what I'm saying here. Yeah, I, uh, certainly um, the... I guess also like the fact that Veidt finds that this you know, paradise that uh, that um, that Manhattan has created is not enough, and actually he needs to is do something else. Or I, you, you could there are different things you could read into that. You could either read you could either read Veidt trying to leave the the Europa Dome as Lindelof trying to sort of either disrupt uh, the book or him trying to actually go back to the original book rather than like do anything <laughs> new which uh, is accords with some of the complaints that you guys have about this episode well Lindelof made it his purpose to create something beautiful and he made the leftovers and so now he's in the leftovers of his career perhaps this is <laughs> what he's doing I was kind of just imagining, like, if Dr. Manhattan, when he was offering to take Vite to Utopia, if he had just taken a few more seconds to say, like, uh, look, bro, you literally won't be able to do anything for, like, fun <laughs> in this world. It's literally just servants and a house. Like, he would have been like, nah, I'm not into that, you know? Where do you get the Desmond Decker record? That's a good question. I mean, I guess if he can just materialise any entertainment that he wants. Okay, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. You got me. I mean, I don't know. I, I, the thing with Manhattan, uh, the thing, sorry, the thing with Vite on Europa is that, like, um, I doubt there's nothing fun that he might enjoy doing there. I think the problem is more like the the people and kind of the clones that populate it, rather than because you know he's got his music. He can kind of he's got this beautiful like lands to ride around in, and pres- presumably there are leisure activities activities he can do, or he could get the clones to like set up for him or whatever. I think the problem is not so much that it's like a horrible place. I think the point is actually it's it's an alright place, but that. The nature of not necessarily just Vite, but of maybe people, is that it's just fundamentally unsatisfying without the real sort of the, the kind of the real relationships that are forged through well, not well, maybe just struggle and interest and kind of personal growth and stuff. Like there isn't a possibility for growth in that world. I think is a big thing. It comes back to that Lindelof idea of you need balance and centrum, centrism is the way because Vite is unsatisfied <laughs> by the utopian. Europa, but is also very unsatisfied back on Earth in Karnak on Antarctica, seeing humans not use the peace afforded by his squid, his fake squids, to you know improve the way he wanted them to. Like his perfume nostalgia failed. Oh no, Millennium failed. His idea that everyone would get hyped up on a utopian vision that didn't work. People went luddite and they got really scared, and they were still making bombs for security. Like that's too negative for him. And then Europe is too positive for him. He needs that perfect centrist balance, is what I think Lindelof is suggesting. He really, Veidt really reminded me of um, Lucille Bluth in this episode, like walking around <laughs> in, his, in his little robe, and like it's like he doesn't want his children, he doesn't want Buster to succeed because like he needs to be there for Earth. He gets off on being withholding. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You what? could also draw a parallel between Veidt and uh, Tom Perotta's show, Mrs. Fletcher, because, like, she's a mother and her kid goes off to college and she doesn't know what to do with herself. So there's a little Perotta um, backsplash. That's interesting. You know, what confuses me is, on Europa, did Veidt ever try teaching the clones? Like, are we meant to just take that as obvious he tried and it didn't really work out? Because, like, 
He complains how simple they are a lot, but is he just making them do tasks for him? Or has he ever like sat them down and tried to properly? Like he's a very smart man. I assume he's a decent teacher or maybe not with his ego, but I wonder if he's like actually tried to help them develop mentally or not. Hmm. Well, we see them, we see they've taken on identities that seem to be like pretty much assigned to them by uh, Vi and they seem to kind of assist him in all sorts of activities and stuff. I imagine, I doubt it's all stuff that Manhattan like programmed into them. I imagine he must have taught them various things like obviously he didn't build that entire catapult on his own but rather you know, he dropped the blueprints and stuff so i think i think it's possible that he might have tried to teach them various things but at the same time i wonder i wonder to to what extent he would actually enjoy or be bothered with teaching like someone else anything like he seems so he seems so interested in just like furthering himself rather than actually and, and just sort of i mean his his inherent plan like setting off a, a squid bomb killing a bunch of people and just assuming that they will work all out for themselves that seems like his mo uh, whereas doing the actual work of you know the hard work of engaging with people and getting them to improve themselves manually seems like something that is maybe not something he could really be bothered with you see in episode three he's elated when the game warden challenges him and like you know prevents an obstacle to his tasks like finally being mentally engaged it you know it rallies him up so much he writes that letter back to him and he's all hyped up it's a wonder he didn't interact with the game warden more to me like having more games with him or more even if not necessarily fighting with him just talking to him or something because this is the closest thing to another you know fully conscious person on the on the moon so I wonder why they didn't seem to interact that much before his imprisonment. I wonder if it's because even if the game warden is you know more self-willed than the other clones, it, at the end of the day his objective is still the same, which is to keep to to keep Vi in this role of master and just to keep the status quo in place. Like it's not like I'm certainly you know, the, the game warden might be uh, a, a fitting enemy for Vi, but he's not. At the same time, I don't think he's really he 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 doesn't quite have that. Uh, fundamental like self-motivation to actually be like a true a true kindred spirit I, I, I suppose if we do get a season two i seriously want like an origin story or a maybe we'll be kind of seen as origin but i would love like a more character focused episode on the game warden if we have to get you know more content he's definitely one of the characters i'm most interested in seeing more of or what if, like, that statue of Ozymandias that Lady Tree has, what if they start to melt away the carbonite and you're expecting Adrian Veidt to come out and then bang it to the game warden? And fund it, you know? I'm sold. I've, I've never thought of that before. The whole idea of doing a post credit scene with all the Veidt content, like, Nicole Castle in an interview justified it as, oh, it's like the back matter of the comics. You have the main story in a chapter, then you have this added stuff at the end. And that's cool to me, but I feel like if you were going to have them in eight of nine episodes and then you couldn't fit it naturally into this one so you put it at the end for unity's sake could we not have had a little bite scene after episode six's credits or was that episode too solemn to like append one to just would have been kind of nice to have that unity, I think. Honestly, I don't think episode six really merited any Vite stuff in it at all. I think that's that's the actual significant political episode of the show. And I think we, ju we just, you know, the, the Vite stuff is great fun, but at the same time, it's sort of, it's on a separate track and it's going to converge with the main you know, story at some point. But like, certainly com comparing episode six to episode eight, right? With episode eight being this whole kind of comic fan service thing with Manhattan and sort of sci-fi, timey-wimey crap, 
crap and stuff like it's 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 i think it's okay to have a right thing there whereas with episode six i just i just, it just sort of felt wrong even if it was after the credits i just don't think it needed one i don't know if the timeline would work at all for this i suspect it wouldn't but it could have been interesting to have still a scene set in the 20th century and it being Ozymandias meeting Hooded Justice or something, perhaps. So not a Europa scene, but still a Vite thing. But that's this feels, you know, very inessential, like you're saying. And de-aging Jeremy Irons doesn't seem something the show is interested in at all. But there's my little copy thought. But yeah, on that note, it struck me. It was amusing that in this episode, they go... Um, Nicole Castle has said that she went to such an extent to not um, tread on the toes of the the comic version of uh, Manhattan and his appearance there and people's mental image of him by you know avoiding showing his face before he took up the, the body of Cal. And it struck me that they didn't show anywhere near that restraint in episode five when they showed Jeremy Irons very uh, shakily de-aged into his comic era appearance on the videotape. I just find like, could, could they not have done something similar there? Like, I wouldn't have minded. Instead of showing him, like, slightly weird looking and very clearly looking like an old man, but pretending to not be one, that was a bit weird. Oh, just one more thing. Um, I did, I, I adored Jeremy Irons' performance in general in this episode. He, and we talked about him reminding me of Lucille Bluth, but he reminded me of, this is so trite, but he reminded me of Doctor Who. Just when he was talking about, like, his, um, he irradiated it with tachyon particles and, oh, you wanted to love you for you. He just, he just gave me Capaldi vibes. It was so, like, he, he was just, it was just such a kind of mad scientist thing. He really lit up after reuniting with uh, with John, and that was actually really nice to see, because it was, it was a different side of the character than we'd seen in all of those Europa segments, so that was really nice. And um, just generally, I, I, I like the, the performances and that whole thing. Yeah, when Veidt says um, you wanted to be a, a, a Hugh man, not a blue man, that <laughs> yeah. struck me. It's like a sort of like like a coy, like old man joke type vibe. But um, I guess, like... I mean, I don't know. You take a scene like the last stand at the end when Manhattan goes out to face like the Seventh Cavalry. I felt like the episode was trying to sell it as like a big romantic thing between Angela and John. Yeah, with the music as well, the, the kind of the gospel yeah. choir, going, hoo, hoo, hoo. and you didn't buy it. Yeah, and I basically just no, I didn't buy it. I didn't really feel anything for them. Uh, the only scene in this episode that really made me feel anything was like the Viet. Before he goes to Europa, I thought that was quite um, profound. Maybe in a large part due to Irons, but it was also a pretty well-written scene. But um, yeah, it left me cold, basically. I'm glad they didn't use literally every song with blue in the title, though. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, the Rhapsody in Blue at the start, and then the Blue Danube uh, waltz later on. They got very, um, yeah, it was very cutesy with those music choices. And One more, and it would have been too much, but I think they got away with it. Going into the finale next week which is titled See How They Fly, which is a line from I Am The Walrus, of course, by The Beatles. Do you think the episode will just feature the song outright, like The Beatles version, not feature the song, feature a Reznor Ross version of the song, or feature both the original song and a Reznor version of the song? Um, I would lean to either the original song playing or it not playing, actually, because actually, maybe... I'm something maybe it might not play like it might just be a thing where it's just a quotation in the title I don't think we'll get a Reznor Ross cover because I feel like they they blew their load in terms of Reznor Ross covers of classic songs with Life on Mars I think a second one would be like two two episodes later I think would be uh, kind of over egging the pudding so to speak you know not to over egg the pudding with too many egg metaphors but you know what I mean it was pretty powerful when like after all the flashbacks in this episode you jump back to the present day in Angela's kitchen and like after hearing all this sort of period music like Reznor's and Ross's score like contrasted with that it's just so um 
powerful and like sinister. I mean, I mean, I know it's obvious at this point, but like it really struck me in this episode. I felt much better getting back to their score. This is this might just be my taste in music. I was totally happy with the licensed music in episode six because I love the ink spots and I love that whole time period of music. But in this one, I was just kind of nodding through all the blue songs. I like the classical stuff, like in the Vite scenes. But yeah, hopefully next week, Beatles or No has lots of resonatory stuff to close the series out because that's, I think, the one part, maybe the one part of the series I can say that never really backslid at all. That's always been such a fantastically strong part of the show. Let's hope next week ends everything fantastically well as well. One more thing before we wrap up. Um, I predicted accurately well in advance that while we would not necessarily see that much of a Dr. Manhattan's dick, I knew for sure we would see Cal's dick and we did. Yeah, very much. Cal hangs dong. There you go, guys. Bravo.